0: Log Talk Radio.
1: This is Abayomi Azikawe and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikoway. Today is Friday, December the 22nd, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of uh, the pan-african journal the special worldwide radio broadcast later on in our program i uh, will be bringing you our regular pan-african newswire report we'll have dispatches on the yemen resistance forces uh, who are saying that they are not deterred by pentagon threats south african veteran activist says racism is pervasive in the occupied palestinian territories The World Health Organization has issued another statement on the dire humanitarian crisis in Gaza, and the military situation in Gaza remains tense. In the second hour, we looked at the role of the United States in the grave humanitarian situation in the Gaza Strip in Palestine. We then listened to the historic Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Massey Lectures Part 1. Finally, we'll review uh, the recent African National Congress Media Briefing in KwaZulu-Natal. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll continue with our Um Kautum Orchestra's Film Festival. Uh, This is a live concert from 1957. Let's listen in. كوكب الشرف السيدة أم كلثوم لتغني من كلمات أحمد رامي وألحان رياض السنباطي أغنية دليل إحتار.
2: Moniz
3: Thank you.
1: Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast, a special edition of our program uh, for Friday, uh, December 22nd, uh, 2023. And we're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, that was uh, the Orchestra of Um Kaltoum, the Egyptian classical music. Uh, That concert was recorded uh, in 1957. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan African Newswire segment uh, of our program. Uh, but uh, before we do that, uh, we're going to, of course, take a break, and we'll be back.
4: Thank you.
1: The Electric Lady Land album, uh, Burning of the Midnight Lamp, uh released on that album uh in the fall of nineteen sixty eight in the United States. Now that track was released uh the year before as a single in uh Great Britain. You're listening to the Pan African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh for Friday, December twenty second, twenty twenty three, and we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment right now. The anti-Yemen-U.S. naval coalition has failed ever since the moment. The leader of the Ansar Allah noted that Yemen is ready for war in the event of any attack, according to Israeli media. Israeli media reported uh, yesterday that Yemen is not deterred uh, by the International Naval Coalition, Operation Prosperity Garden, uh, former under- the leadership of the americans as it has now hinted, hinted at attacking ships associated with the coalition the israeli media pointed out that the leader of Ansar Allah, saeed abdul malik al houthi threatened any country operating against yemen including those taking part in operation prosperity guardian that its ships uh, would be legitimate targets for yemeni armed forces in the red sea israeli channel 12 reported that yemen is ready to go to war and is not affected uh, by the threat of the international coalition this position was made clear uh, said channel 12 in saeed al houthi's latest speech uh, where he threatened to strike american ships if they targeted yemen before he stressed that yemen would come out victorious from any uh, such war with the united states and a former anti-apartheid uh, activist uh, Ronnie Casriles uh, has uh, published an article uh, in the Palestinian Chronicle uh, just uh, three days ago. Of course, according to a prelude uh, to the article, Casriles says, this is my response to a South African commentator who runs the Brent Thrust Foundation. He criticized me in several South African online publications for my support for Palestinian resistance, and more particularly, a lecture I gave to solidarity activists after the October 7th, which had gone viral, Palestinian Chronicle uh, ran that article. Greg Mills accuses me of having no moral compass because I support the right of all oppressed people to resist and to resist armed oppression with armed resistance. My principles are universal. They apply in all situations. In the same way i oppose all forms of racism naturally this includes anti-semitism which is a form of racism mills however appears indifferent to the lives of palestinians and other muslims he has been directly involved in imperialist oppression and remains complicit with it in 2006 he was a special advisor to the commander of the nato forces occupying afghanistan today the board of the brent thrust foundation which Mills directs includes Richard Myers, the former chairman of the joint chiefs of staff in the United States of America, and Nick Carter, former chief of defense staff in the United Kingdom. Myers and Carter both took leading roles in the destruction of Iraq following the invasion led uh, by the United States over 20 years ago. Now, according to this same uh, intervention uh, by Ronnie Cass of South Africa, He says that the destruction of Iraq at the price of over a million lives is widely recognized as a war crime. And yet Mills happily consorts with perpetrators of the most horrific war crime in a generation. He does not show an ounce of the concern he lavages on the lives of people in Israel and Ukraine for the lives of Iraqis and other Arabs. His racism is rank. I oppose all forms of racism support the right of all people living under military occupation to arm resistance and oppose and regret all loss of civilian life. I hold these principles without regard to the race of the oppressed or the oppressor. Mills does not engage with the situation in Gaza or the West bank with any factual rigor. And the same is true of his attack on myself where he wholly ignores the context of my remarks. For instance, he says that Hamas, has an ideology to eliminate Israel as Israelis, and uses this to claim to compare Hamas to the Nazis. The 2017 Hamas Charter, which remains current, clearly states it is in conflict with the Zionist project, not the Jews, and that it rejects the persecution of any human being or the undermining of his or her rights on nationalist, religious, and or sectarian grounds. It incorrectly describes the Zionist project as a racist, aggressive, colonial, and expansionist project based on uh, seizing uh, the properties of others and correctly asserts the right of the victims of Zionism to take up arms against their oppressors, but does not in any way call for the attack on Jewish people because they are Jewish people. The Hamas Charter reveals uh, the Palestinian struggle to be no different to the South African struggle which was waged against the abominations, abominations of the apartheid system and colonial possession of land, not against whites, because they were whites. My personal view, according to Ronnie Cass is that there should be a single secular democratic state with rights for all, along the lines of post-apartheid South Africa, in the territory of historical Palestine, but the 2017 Hamas Charter does not call for the replacement of the Israeli ethno state with a single inclusive state and clearly accepts a two-state solution with a Palestinian state contiguous with the 1967 borders. And you can read uh, this story in its entirety uh, over uh, the Pan-African Newswire. In other news, the World Health Organization says Gaza is witnessing an average 300 deaths per day, with only nine of its 36 hospitals partially functioning. Calling for an immediate ceasefire, the Director General of the World Health Organization, said. Adhanom Ghebreyesus, said on Thursday, quote, I have lost count of the number of times when I thought the crisis in Gaza could not get more horrific, but it has happened again, unquote. Quote, the fact that we are talking about 20,000 people killed, mostly children and women, and with over 52,000 and counting afflicted by life-threatening and altering injuries. In nearly three months, in both horrific and above all, a tragedy for humanity, he lamented in a statement. The World Health Organization chief said, quote, the horrors are endless for those trapped in what has become a hell on earth, unquote. In his statement, he listed points to sum up the current situation. We are witnessing, he said, the following. On average, around 300 deaths a day, while hostilities have ravaged. A devastated health system with only nine of, of Gaza's 36 hospitals partially functioning, with none functioning in the north. Children orphaned after patients have been slain, after parents have been slain. Disease, hunger, and lack of clean water and sanitation poses further risks beyond the bombs and bullets, a constantly perilous and restricted humanitarian space in which to deliver life-saving medical supplies mental health trauma that will haunt many years to come. The carnage must stop. We need a ceasefire now, the Director General of the World Health Organization concluded. According to the Gaza Ministry of Health, 20,000 Palestinians have been killed, including 8,000 children and 6,200 women, and 52,600 have been wounded in Israel's ongoing genocide in Gaza starting on October the 7th. Palestinian and international estimates say that the majority of those killed and wounded are women and children. And, of course, uh, our final story uh, deals with a press statement by Abu Obeda, the military spokesman for the Al Qassam Brigades. As the Israeli government of right-wing Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu continues to reject a comprehensive and permanent ceasefire to the genocidal war in Gaza, Abu Obeddi made another appearance uh, just on Thursday. Al Qasim Brigade's military spokesman Abu Obade reported on the last on the latest number of Israeli military vehicles destroyed by the Palestinian resistance since the start of the war. He also updated Palestinians on the conditions of the resistance while sending clear messages to Israelis about their captives held in Gaza. Palestinians want all of their political prisoners detained in Israel to be released in order for all Israeli prisoners to be released as well. And uh, you can read this article as well on our website at the Pan-African Newswire. And uh, we will wind up our Pan-African Newswire segment in concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide uh, radio broadcast, just go uh, to our website, and that is at, of course, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal to reach the Pan-African Radio Network, which has all of the issues and episodes uh, of the Pan African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. Of, uh, New Rotary Connection from 1971. I am the Black Gold of the Sun, uh, that track out of Chicago, and uh, you're listening to the Pan African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Friday, December 22nd, 2023, and we are broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We're going to go uh, to listen to a report on the U.S. complicity in the dire humanitarian crisis that exists uh, in the Gaza Strip. Uh, Let's listen to this report.
5: Is the US complicit in the humanitarian crisis in Gaza? And if so, how much? As Israel continues its attacks on the Strip, the situation for its people is described as catastrophic. Washington stands accused of turning a blind eye. So what can be done to stop this catastrophe? This is Inside Story. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Cyril Vanier. After more than two months of war and siege, more chaotic scenes at the Rafa crossing as people fight to get desperately needed humanitarian aid. Before the war, 850 trucks of aid entered the strip every day through the Karam Abu Salem crossing with Israel and the Rafah crossing with Egypt. Now that ended when Israel imposed a complete blockade on October the 7th. Israel has temporarily reopened the route through Karam Abu Salem for the first time to allow in more humanitarian aid. And 24 trucks were allowed through. That was on Sunday, but that's far short of the huge needs of the Palestinians. Should the United States, a staunch ally of Israel, be doing more to help them? And how complicit is Washington in this humanitarian catastrophe that's unfolding? We'll discuss all this in a moment. First though, this report from Victoria Gatenby.
0: A desperate scramble for food and water at the Rafa crossing. Aid agencies say at least half the people in Gaza are starving and Rafa in the South is at the epicenter of what the UN describes an apocalyptic humanitarian crisis.
1: We are teetering on the edge of a possible implosion, because there is more and more a breakdown of a civil order, and uh, as long the humanitarian assistance remain a crumble compared to the immensity of the needs, the more this tension will continue, the more the environment is becoming impossible.
0: Israel's war has taken an unprecedented toll on Gaza's entire population. The UN says 1.9 million Palestinians, that's more than 85% of its people, have been uprooted from their homes. More than a million have been pushed to Rafah, which is now the most densely populated area in the Strip. Food is scarce and there's no sanitation. The UN says around 2.2 million people need food aid to survive.
6: There's been no flour for three or four days. There's no water no rice we're suffering there's nothing living conditions are zero percent even mine is zero
0: I've come every day since Wednesday and returned empty-handed I spent the night outside the gate while the area was being bombed it's very difficult to endure this suffering I'm not able to buy food for my children Israel allowed a limited amount of aid through the Karam Abu Salem crossing on Sunday. That's the first time since the start of the war on Gaza. But as Israel's army continues to bombard the Strip, UN officials are warning the limited delivery of desperately needed humanitarian aid could lead to a breakdown in civil order. Victoria Gatenby for Inside Story.
5: Time to bring in our guest. From Washington, D.C., is Robert Hunter, former U.S. Ambassador to NATO. From Arlington, Virginia, is Khaled El-Gindi, Senior Fellow at the Middle East Institute and Director of Palestine and Israeli-Palestinian Affairs at the Institute. Also from Washington, D.C., is Zaina Ashrawi-Hutchison, Director of Development and Expansion at the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee. You're an activist. Thank you all for joining us. Robert, first question to you. Since the U.S. is Israel's single biggest backer, diplomatically, politically, militarily, economically. How much of this humanitarian disaster, and we've just seen those, those, that footage of people fighting to get that food at the Rafa border crossing, how much of this humanitarian disaster is the U.S. actually responsible for?
7: Well, I think uh, everybody here sympathized, empathized with Israel on October the 7th when Hamas attacked Uh, killed about 1,200 people and took uh, 240 hostages, Uh, but that was now uh, two months ago. Uh, Since then, with the major Israeli onslaught uh, on Gaza, which has killed, I guess, in excess of 20,000 people now, uh, and uh, maybe 50,000 wounded, and the displacement of 85, 90%, maybe even more of people in Gaza, attention around the world and attention here, certainly on the media, has shifted to the disaster, the catastrophe, I think is the word you used, uh, for uh, the Palestinian people. And there really is only one thing that can be done right now is the President of the United States has to tell the Prime Minister of Israel to stop the bombing, to stop the war. And do it right now, because every day it goes on. It's not only worse for the people there; it's becoming worse for the president of the United States and his administration.
5: You're not you're not completely answering my question, Robert. I I take all your points, but the question is how much is the how much can the U.S. be blamed for this? Since the U.S. is providing diplomatic cover for Israel, military assistance, and economic help.
7: Well, how much can the United States be blamed? Uh, Israel is actually doing the uh, the, the fighting and, and the killing of the civilians, as well as, I guess, some people from Hamas. But the United States is Israel's only patriot, patron. Uh, the bombs, most of the bombs, were supplied by the United States. Some of them are high-tech weapons. Some of them what they call dumb bombs. Uh, we are actively engaged in this fight. Because without United States support, Israel wouldn't be able to carry it on. And we're, we're uh, Israel's only, uh, only friend in the world. Everybody in the world knows uh, the, the war would stop if the United States said to Israel, it has to stop.
5: So do I infer from that that you blame the U.S. at least in part for this or not quite?
7: Well, I, I, I think assessing blame is quite useless. I'm trying to make the point that if the United States said uh, uh, stop it, it would have to stop. Mm. If you want to call that blame, uh, I'll let you do it. But it's certainly agency and it's certainly engagement and it's certainly responsibility of the United States now uh, to, mm. to get Israel to stop.
5: Mm. Khaled, over to you. You titled your recent book Blind Spot. America and the Palestinians from Balfour to Trump. Is the Palestinian suffering a blind spot in U.S. foreign policy circles or in U.S. decision-making?
6: I think there's no question that it is. Um, The United States, uh, U.S. officials have historically had multiple blind spots, uh, most often to Palestinian political aspirations and rights um, but now we're seeing a very pronounced blind spot with regard to Palestinian humanity. Um, it's, it's, uh, I, mean, I think it's clear that the United States is, uh, bears enormous responsibility and, frankly, is complicit in the humanitarian catastrophe unfolding in Gaza. Um, the United States has supported uh, Israel at every stage uh, of this war, um, there are many things the United States could have done that it did not do. It could have laid out red lines uh, very early on with regard to civilians. It could have said um, it's not acceptable to weaponize uh, starvation and disease uh, in in uh, to, uh, directed at an entire civilian population. We know that Israel is deliberately causing a uh, humanitarian catastrophe, and that is part of its strategy. Um, and instead of, of laying out clear red lines up front, um, the United States, and frankly, all of Western Europe, um, primarily um, most of Western Europe, um, have also acquiesced in this, uh, in this catastrophe. No one spoke out uh, to say it is not acceptable to use food and water and medicine mm-hmm. as a weapon of war. Um, and so uh, the United States bears Um, enormous uh, responsibility and is frankly finding it very difficult having offered no red lines and a a bright green light, Uh, the United States has now uh, kind of painted itself into a corner where they can't uh, rein in the the military machine, um, the the death and destruction um, that is being inflicted on Gaza.
5: Khaled, you mentioned starvation. Um, In fact, just today, just a few hours ago, uh, Human Rights Watch published a report called Starvation as a Weapon of War. Starvation used as a weapon of war in Gaza is the exact title of the report. Uh, I'll quote from it. Human Rights Watch writes, the Israeli government is using starvation of civilians as a method of warfare in the occupied Gaza Strip, which is a war crime, Israeli forces are deliberately blocking the delivery of water, food and fuel, apparently raising agricultural areas, depriving the civilian population of objects indispensable to their survival. Um, Zaina Zena, Zena Shrawi Hutchison, I, I want to bring you into this conversation. So, the, the question that I was asking Robert at the top of the show is how much the U.S. can be blamed for it. I understand Robert's point that you know, he, he doesn't see value in assigning blame, but that so many of our viewers are asking this very same question. If you have one party to the conflict that is not directly involved, but that is allowing the other to carry out the war and the result of the war is starvation and a humanitarian crisis, how much do you blame that supporting party? And that's, you know, that's the central question that we're asking today.
8: Um, I mean, I think it's there. I mean, complicity is simplistic even. Uh, The U.S. has been directly involved in this genocide uh, since since the very beginning with generals on the ground with uh, sending weapons and bombs and and financial aid, of course, and diplomatic cover and support continuously. We also can't forget that we talk about Gaza uh, and the Gaza Strip right now in terms of genocide, but before this genocide started, Gaza was in a really precarious position. Uh, There was food insecurity. They didn't have clean water to drink. There was no sanitation, you know, uh, um, infrastructure present. So before this genocide started, Gaza was in a precarious position, and now it's beyond comprehension, to be quite honest. And the U.S. has known about this, has been complicit and directly involved in this genocide uh, from day one, and enabled it to continue with its silence as well as uh, uh, financial and diplomatic support. But I also want to emphasize that in order for them to continue, for the U.S. to continue this support for Israel, they need to have local support for, ge- for the genocide. So for decades, uh, and it's sort of encapsulated in the in, in Gaza Strip right now, but for decades, the United States has given cover for Israel to do whatever Israel wants to do—financial, diplomatic, um, federally—with resolutions and bills, which we've seen now since the start of the uh, of the genocide in the Gaza Strip. Uh, a record number of bills have have gone through the the um, federally through Congress, uh, conflating anti-Semitism with the criticism of Israel, etc. Uh, There's also US organizations backing billions funding illegal settlements. I mean, we can go on about this. There's Mm. APAC involvement, ADL. So, I mean, the involvement of of the United States in the genocide on Gaza, but also in the ethnic cleansing and the settler colonialism uh, that Palestine has been experiencing is direct and long term.
5: A few more data points uh, to submit to all of you that are taken from this Human Rights Watch report on starvation used as a weapon of war in Gaza. On November 15th, the last operational wheat mill uh, in the Gaza Strip was bombed by Israel. Uh, November 28th, we had a report that more than a third of agricultural land in northern uh, in the northern Gaza Strip had been damaged or destroyed. This comes from the Palestine food security sector. The World Food Program says there's a serious risk of starvation in Gaza. Uh, on December 6th, the only water desalination plant in northern Gaza was uh, stopped being functional, and on and on and on and goes. And, you know, the broader picture that this paints is it becomes... Very difficult at this stage, and that's a massive understatement, to eat, to drink, and to do all those things that just on a very, very basic level keep people alive. Robert, I'll I'll come back to you with this idea of values. One of the things, one of the pillars of America's power in the world is that it claims to uphold values and to be a more ethical power than other countries, right, than some of its rivals when the us ties itself to something like this where people just can't eat enough and there's a very simple answer by the way there's a very simple solution to this allow in more humanitarian aid enough aid so that people can eat and drink at a bare minimum when the us ties itself to something like this what does it do to its power around the world
7: this is one of the biggest concerns i think the united states has Uh, or at least the administration should have in terms of overall American standing in the world. At the moment, the US reputation for caring deeply about humanitarian issues is being shredded by what uh, Netanyahu and his government and Israel in general are doing. Uh, The United States is complicit. Uh, The war could not continue without the United States. Uh, The United States could demand instantly Uh, humanitarian supplies, and the United States could instantly tell Mr. Netanyahu that the war has to stop. The President of the United States uh, could tell Mr. Netanyahu that that is what has to happen, and I don't think even Netanyahu could afford to ignore what the United States wants to do. But we, the Americans, are paying a very heavy price for what is being done in this war. And uh, it's gonna be difficult for us to go back anywhere else in the world and talk about uh, Mm. how other countries behave. Uh, Whether it's in uh, Burma or in China or in uh, Central African Republic, uh, the United States no longer at the moment has Mm. any credibility as a humanitarian country.
5: Following up on what you just said, why isn't the US president picking up his phone giving the Israeli prime minister a call and saying, now this has to change. And we are going to have to allow in more aid, water and other basic necessities into the Gaza Strip.
7: Well, it's not just that. It's to stop the bombing, uh, uh, to, uh, which which makes it worse. You can have all the humanitarian aid you want, but if you continue to slaughter people, uh, that's not going to help the, the dead people. Uh, why is the president doing it? One, because he has a lifelong uh, attachment, uh, particularly in his generation, to the security and prosperity and future of the state of of Israel, but also he has political calculations. We are now, what, 11 months before the next presidential election. Mm. Uh, He has to think about a major part of his constituency. So in some ways, and this is what, as an American, within our politics troubles me very deeply, uh, it appears that the president is looking to his political base. uh, Let's call it for what it is. It's called the Israel lobby and not wanting to offend the lobby by coming out and saying I'm sorry for the good of the United States and yes for the long-term good of Israel as well as Palestinians this must stop now and frankly if the president made that clear to Mr. Netanyahu he would be taking a huge risk for his country mm. if he did not comply.
5: Khalid El-Gindi and Zena, I want to hear you on, on, on this issue of US politics as well and and re-election chances if um, you take a stronger approach to Israel. But how did you first on this? Do you subscribe to this notion that you do not get re-elected as U.S. president? Specifically, that Biden would not get re-elected as U.S. president if, at this juncture, he were to be harder on Israel?
6: I mean, that's been the conventional wisdom for uh, for many many years. Uh, the the irony is that today the the political landscape is quite different and and it looks um, like the reverse may may even be true that this this might be you know the the, the administration's handling of this issue has been criticized um, uh, and and is opposed by large segments of the American population uh, well beyond the Arab and Muslim communities uh, or progressives um, but but particularly his uh, base, uh, young people, uh, people of color, certainly uh, the Arab and Muslim communities in, in, in the United States are quite angry at his um, at his uh, apparent indifference to Palestinian suffering and, and his entire handling of this war. So um, we've seen a polls uh, show that he's actually lost considerable support. Um, as a result of this, And mm. so this might actually be the first time a uh, an American president loses an election because of their support for Israel as opposed to the opposite. Um, uh, but uh, you know we I, i'm I'm not entirely convinced that that the President is acting purely or even primarily uh, with regard to domestic politics. I think he is a true believer. I think he is passionate about his support for Israel, um, and he is. It is partly generational, but it's also uniquely uh, Joe Biden. Uh, other presidents who've also been quite uh, uh, unshakable in their support for Israel have at least been able to see the bigger picture from a human standpoint, from a strategic standpoint. Um, the uh, the the person of Joe Biden seems to be completely blinded uh, even to the realities of how this is going to harm U.S. interests uh, as well as Israeli security going forward. I mean, there's no, there's no, um, it's impossible to imagine that in Israel inflicting this level of human and material destruction on Gaza is somehow going to bring security or stability to anyone. I think anyone uh, with some basic common sense, never mind empathy, can can understand that. And so we're talking about a, a, a serious blindness, um, a, a serious kind of emotional attachment that has blinded him even to the damage he's doing to American interests. And, and that mm-hmm. is, I think, very, uh, very much uh, a part of the, the person of Joe Biden rather than simply a political or geopolitical set of calculations.
5: Okay, that's really interesting. I want to come back to part of this. But first, Zaina, I had you waiting in the wings there about this this U.S. domestic politics question. You tweeted not that long ago, election season is about to go in overdrive and Palestinians will pay the price of two failed leaderships. So you do seem to believe that this is going to be dictated. How the U.S. behaves on this issue is going to be dictated, at least in part, by U.S. domestic political considerations. How do you think that shapes what we're going to see?
8: So, I mean, just to go back a little bit, while many supported Biden begrudgingly under false pretense and, and with the intimidation of the vote for a lesser of two evils in 2020, if you will, um, there's no longer a viable option for many, and um, there simply is no worse than genocide, you know. Uh, so, for decades, the Palestinian-American, Arab-American, Muslim-American vote has been taken for granted, particularly by the Democratic Party, you know, the mm. party that boasts inclusion, diversity, human rights, uh, the umbrella... Um, using a system of tokenization, intimidation, and mostly political decorative lip service. Uh, we've, we've heard the talk many times. We are starting to see people accuse and label protest, uh, protest vote as a vote against democracy, like a protest vote against uh, Biden if people don't vote. Or, um, so accusations leveled against those demanding an end to genocide um, that two months later uh, remain unheeded. And I want to make it very clear that the intimidation tactics and blame that have been used for decades, this is not recent, for decades on disenfranchised voters, that if we don't vote for Biden or the Democratic Party, it's a vote against democracy. It's not just the antithesis of democracy, but it also strategically absolves the Biden administration in this case and the Democratic Party from accountability on the direct involvement as we were discussing earlier on genocide and distracts again, from the failed leadership of the political elite. Um, I mean, imagine imagine the Palestinian-Americans and Arab-Americans and Muslim-Americans and allies being chastised for refusing to support the killing of your own family members. Or imagine being shamed for refusing to be complicit in the Mm. erasure of your own people. Uh, Imagine being blamed for the failure of democracy simply for participating in it. If our votes are challenging a system that has historically been reliant on marginalizing, manipulating, bullying, and targeting minorities as as undemocratic, then again, this isn't a democracy. Um, Many in leadership have long perfected deflection and blame, as we know, and projecting their own political shortcomings on those who are less capable and or less uh, uh, less equipped um, to defend or protect themselves. And this is also by design. So um, a potential Biden-Harris loss can only be blamed on Biden-Harris and their administration and the Democratic Party. Any other claim is disingenuous, to be quite frank. And and sorry to take up too much time, but let me be very clear here. I'm not saying not to vote or or don't vote. In fact, I hope Palestinian-American, Arab-American, Muslim-Americans and allies uh, in our community Register family and friends to vote. Go out and, and educate people on what it means to vote and what your vo- uh, voice means. And but, but Zena, but also. Zena, here's
5: the here's yes. the thing. And sorry to interrupt and jump in, but here's the thing about no, uh, about about when you go to the polling station, you know, on on uh, when it's when it's election day in the U.S. presidential election. It's a little less than uh, it's about 11 months away now, just under 11 months away. Is that voters will likely at this stage not a guarantee, but likely have the choice between Biden and Trump. So anybody who wants to punish Biden on account of the way he handled this war would potentially be voting for Trump. Uh, And I'm not sure if your moral compass says I wanted more support for Palestinians and therefore I'm not voting for Biden, I'm not sure that same moral compass then leads you to a vote for Trump.
8: Yes, but uh, nobody, first of all, it's, uh, this is what democracy is. When you have a two-party system, you have to vote for one or the other. And in Are you saying phase, they should vote we, for
5: Trump then? Are you saying that people who support the Palestinian cause should vote for Trump uh, in November of 2024?
8: Absolutely not. I'm actually not advocating for a vote for Trump or the Republicans at all. In fact, I disagree with almost all of their policies. Um, what I am saying uh, is showing up to vote and writing in a name or simply voting for down-ballot candidates based on hmm. policy is accountability for genocide and for 75 years, 75 plus years, of total impunity that the U.S. has afforded Israel at the expense of the Palestinian people and the morality of our just cause. So accountability is uncomfortable, but it pales in the face of genocide and the ethnic cleansing of, uh, that's happening right now in Palestine. The Democratic Party, win or lose, needs to have some serious soul-searching after this. Many already felt that they don't belong in the party, but were ver- uh, merely tokenizing and and, and being part of the party because they don't have anywhere else to go now It's time to act on it, and this is not exclusive to the Arab, Palestinian, Muslim um, uh, communities either if I may
5: So Robert, we have about three minutes left a little under three minutes in the show at this point Um, There's a question we asked at the very top of the show and I recognize it's a little bit more aspirational But we said what can be done to stop this humanitarian catastrophe you've been a practitioner right (laughs) of diplomacy At at the highest level, you were NATO ambassador. What would be your answer to that question?
7: Well, the president of the United States needs to tell the prime minister of Israel Hmm. this has to stop and be willing to back it up uh, with immediately stopping the supply of arms. But he's not
5: so far. That's Uh, the whole point.
7: Stopping the economic support. Uh, Do what President Eisenhower did in 1956 and just said, we love Israel, we love the relationship, but if you don't stop this now, there are going to be very serious consequences for you. And he's got to show it, and he's got to make it happen. Instead of sending people out there, as he did this last week, and is going to this week, and say, well, we're really for you, but please, pretty please, don't be so beastly to the Palestinians. Now, that is not only stupid, it's crass, and it's immoral.
5: All right, that's all the time we have for today. But thank you so much to everybody for coming. I want to thank our guests, Robert Hunter, Khaled El-Gindi, Zayna Shrawi Hutchison. And thank you, too, for watching. You can see the program again anytime by visiting our website. That's aljazeera.com, of course. And for further discussion, go to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. You can also join the conversation on X. Our handle there is at AJ Inside Story. From me, Cyril Vanier, and the whole team here in Doha. Bye for now.
1: Welcome back, and uh, that was a panel discussion on the culpability of U.S. imperialism in the genocide taking place against the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Friday, December 22, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week. That was the music of the legendary Otis Redding and Carla Thomas during their cover of the track entitled, Are You Lonely For Me, Baby, released in 1967. This is the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, December 22nd, 2023, and we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit, and coming up, In just another uh, two weeks, two and a half weeks, will be uh, the annual uh, 21st Detroit uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Rally in March. It's going to be held on Monday, January the 15th, 2024. And uh, this will be held at the St. Matthew St. Joseph's Episcopal Church in Detroit, uh, located in the North End community uh, between... Holbrook and King Avenue. And uh, there will be a a guest appearance by Sean Fain, uh, president of the UAW International, and Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, among others. So if you're interested, uh, just go to the um, Martin Luther King uh, MLK Detroit uh, Facebook page. You can also go to... um, mlkdetroit.org webpage to get more information uh, on uh, the 21st Annual Detroit MLK Day March and Rally. Right now we want to go back to 1967 and listen to the Massey Lectures aired over the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in December of 1967 uh, featuring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Let's listen uh, to uh, this broadcast.
9: Just as the storming of the Bastille in 1789 was a French masses' symbolic assault against absolutism, The riots are an early warning to white America that patience has run out. Ideas presents Dr. Martin Luther King in the first of five Massey Lectures for 1967. Unlike its predecessors, this year's lectures are by a man who is noted at least as much for his part in making history as for his analytic abilities. In tonight's talk, Dr. King discusses the relative merits of violent and nonviolent approaches to racial problems. Dr. Martin Luther King. It is a deep personal privilege to address a nationwide Canadian audience. Over and above any kinship of United States citizens and Canadians as North Americans, that is a singular historical relationship between American Negroes and Canadians. Canada is not merely a neighbor to Negroes, Deep in our history of struggle for freedom, Canada was a North Star. The Negro slave denied education, dehumanized and imprisoned on curl plantations, knew that far to the North a land existed where a fugitive slave, if he survived the horrors of the journey, could find freedom. The legendary Underground Railroad started in the South and ended in Canada. The Freedom Road links us together. Our spirituals, now so widely admired around the world, were often codes. We sang of heaven that awaited us, and the slave masters listened in innocence, not realizing that we were not speaking of the hereafter. Heaven was the word for Canada, and the Negro sang of the hope that his escape on the Underground Railroad would carry him there. And so, standing today in Canada, I am linked with the history of my people and its unity with your past. The Underground Railroad could not bring freedom to many Negroes, yet it did something far greater It symbolized hope when freedom was almost an impossible dream. Our spirit never died, even though the weight of centuries was a crushing burden. Our freedom was not won a century ago. It is not won today, but some small part of it is in our hands, And we are marching no longer by ones and twos, but in legions of thousands, convinced now that it cannot be denied by any human force. Today the question is not whether we shall be free, but by what course we will win. In the recent past, our struggle has had two phases. The first phase began in the early 50s when Negroes slammed the door shut on submission and subservience. Adapting nonviolent resistance to conditions in the United States, we swept into southern streets to demand our citizenship and manhood. For the South, with its complex system of brutal segregation, we were inaugurating a rebellion. Merely to march in public streets was to rock the status quo to its roots, boycotting buses in Montgomery, demonstrating in Birmingham the citadel of segregation, and defying guns, dogs, and clubs in Selma while maintaining disciplined nonviolence totally confused the rulers of the South. If they let us march, they admitted their lie that the black man was content If they shot us down, they told the world they were inhuman brutes. They tried to stop us by threats and fears, the tactic that had long worked so effectively. But nonviolence had muzzled their guns, and Negro defiance had shaken their confidence. When they finally reached for clubs, dogs, and guns, they found the world was watching and then the power of nonviolent protest became manifest. It dramatized the essential meaning of the conflict and in magnified strokes made clear who was the evildoer and who was the undeserving victim. The nation and the world were sickened and through national legislation wiped out a thousand southern laws ripping gaping holes in the edifice of segregation. These were days of luminous victories. Negroes and whites collaborated for human dignity. But there was a limitation to our achievements. Negroes were outraged by inequality. Their ultimate goal was freedom most of the white majority were outraged by brutality. Their goal was improvement, not freedom or equality. When Negroes could use public facilities, register and vote in some areas of the South, and find token educational advancement, again in token form, find new areas of employment, it brought to the Negro a sense of achievement but it brought to the whites a sense of completion. When Negroes assertively moved on to ascend the second rung of the ladder, a firm resistance from the white community developed. This resistance characterized the second phase which we are now experiencing. The arresting of the limited forward progress by white resistance revealed the latent racism which was deeply rooted in United States society. Everyone underestimated the amount of bigotry the white majority was disguising and the amount of violence and rage Negroes were suppressing. Nonviolence as a protest form came under attack as a tactical theory and all the Negroes express their dismay and hostility in a succession of riots. The riots are now in the center of the stage and are being offered as basis for contradictory positions by whites and Negroes. Some Negroes argue they are the incipient forms for rebellion and guerrilla tactics that will be the feature of the Negro revolt. They are represented as the new stage of Negro struggle, replacing the old and allegedly outworn tactic of nonviolent resistance. At the same time, some white forces are using riots as evidence that Negroes have no capacity for constructive change and in their lawless behavior forfeit all rights and justify any form of repressive measures. I would like to examine both questions. Is the guilt for riots exclusively that of Negroes, and are they in natural development to a new stage of struggle? A million words will be written and spoken to dissect the ghetto outbreaks, but for a perceptive and vivid expression of culpability... I would submit two sentences written a century ago by Victor Hugo. If the soul is left in darkness, sins will be committed. The guilty one is not he who commits the sin, but he who causes the darkness. The policymakers of the white society have caused the darkness. They created discrimination they created slums, they perpetuate unemployment and poverty. It is incontestable and deplorable that Negroes have committed crimes, but they are derivative crimes. They are born of the greater crimes of the white society. When we ask Negroes to abide by the law... Let us also declare that the white man does not abide by law in the ghettos. Day in and day out, he violates welfare laws to deprive the poor of their meager allotments. He flagrantly violates building codes and regulations. His police make a mockery of law. He violates laws on equal employment and education. The slums are the handiwork of a vicious system of the white society. Negroes live in them, but they do not make them any more than a prisoner makes a prison. Let us say it forthrightly, that if the total slum violations of law by the white man over the years were calculated and compared with the law-breaking of a few days of riots, the hardened criminal would be the white man. In using the term white man, I am seeking to describe in general terms the Negro's adversary. It is not meant to encompass all white people. There are millions who have morally risen above prevailing prejudices. They are willing to share power and to accept structural alterations of society even at the cost of traditional privilege. To deny that existence, as some ultra-nationalists do, is to deny an evident truth. It is not the race per se that we fight, but the policies and ideology formulated by leaders of that race to perpetuate oppression. To some of the general causes of riots, we would have to say that the white power structure is still seeking to keep the walls of segregation and inequality substantially intact, while Negro determination to break through them has intensified. The irony is that the white society ruefully complains that if there were no chaos, great changes would come yet it creates the circumstances breeding the chaos. Within the general cause of riots, it is possible to identify five specific elements. The white backlash is a primary cause because it explains the ferocity of the emotional content of the outbursts and their spontaneity. Negroes have endured insults and humiliation for decades and centuries. But in the past ten years, a growing sensitivity in the white community was a gratifying indication of progress. The depravity of the white backlash shattered the hope that new attitudes were in the making. The reversion to barbaric white conduct marked by a succession of murders in the South The recrudescence of white hoodlumism in northern cities and coldly systematic withdrawal of support by some erstwhile white allies constituted a grim statement to Negroes. They were told there were firm limits to their progress, that they must expect to remain permanently unequal and permanently poor. The pervasiveness of discriminatory practices is so taken for granted that its provocative effect is easily forgotten, that are generational differences among Negroes. The older generation has substantially inured itself to daily insults, but a younger generation has a lower threshold of tolerance, an agonizing discrimination cuts off too large a part of their life to be endured in silence and apathy. Even when a Negro manages to grasp a foothold on the economic ladder, discrimination remains to push him off after he has ascended a few rungs. It hounds him at every level to stultify his initiative and insult his being and for the pitifully few who climb into economic security, it persists and closes different doors to them. Intimately related to discrimination is one of its worst consequences, unemployment. The United States teetered on the edge of revolution in the 1930s when unemployment ranged up to 25%. Today, in the midst of historic prosperity... Unemployment for Negro youth, according to government figures, runs as high as 30 to 40 percent in many cities. With most of their lives yet to live, the slamming of doors in their faces can be expected to induce rage and rebellion. The fourth cause is the war in Vietnam. Negroes are conscripted in double measure for combat. They constitute more than twenty percent of the front line troops in a war of unprecedented brutality, although their proportion in the population is ten percent. They are marching under slogans of democracy to defend a Saigon government that scorns democracy. At home, they know that is no genuine democracy for their people, and on their return, they will be restored to a grim life as second-class citizens, even if they are bedecked with heroes' metals. Finally, a complex of causes is found in the degenerating conditions of urban life. The cities are choked with polluted air, dense traffic, and insufficient water. Public facilities are outworn and inadequate. Within this chaos of neglect, Negroes are stifled at the very bottom in slums so squalid that their equal is not to be found in any other industrial nation of the world. Most of the largest cities are victims of the large migration of Negroes, Although it was well known that millions of Negroes would be forced off the land in the South by the contraction of agricultural employment during the past two decades, no national planning was done to provide remedies. When white immigrants arrived in the United States in the late 19th century, a beneficent government gave them free land and credit to build a useful independent life. In contrast, when the Negro migrated, he was left to his own resources. He crowded the cities and was herded into ghettos. Left in unemployment are subjected to gross exploitation within a context of searing discrimination. Though other minorities had encountered obstacles... None was so brutally scorned, nor so consistently denied opportunities as the Negro. All of these conditions were the fuel for violence and riots. As the social psychologist Kenneth Clark has said, it is a surprise only that outbreaks were not experienced earlier that are thoughtful social scientists who are now acknowledging that the elements of social catastrophe have accumulated in such vast array that no remedies may be available. I am not sanguine, but I am not ready to accept defeat. I believe there are several programs that can reverse the tide of social disintegration, And beyond that, I believe that destructive as the riots may be, they have been analyzed substantially in a one-sided fashion. That is a striking aspect to the violence of riots that has stimulated little comment and even less analysis. In all of the riots taken together, the property damage reached colossal proportions exceeding a billion dollars yet the physical injury inflicted by Negroes upon white people was inconsequential in comparison. The bruising edge of the weapon of violence in Negro hands was employed almost exclusively against property, not persons. It is noteworthy that many distinguished periodicals and leaders of the white community even while the conflict raged, in clear terms accepted the responsibility for neglect, evasion, and centuries of injustice. They did not seek to fasten exclusive culpability on the Negro. They asked for action and a facing up to the need for drastic social reformation. It is true that not all were motivated by morality, The crisis of Negro aspirations intersects with the urban crisis. Some white liberals may not be moved by humanity to save Negroes, but they are moved by self-interest to save their cities. But even their moral and selfish motives, which merge toward a constructive end, have not yet made government act. It is preoccupied with war and is determined to husband every resource for military adventures rather than social reconstruction. Negroes must therefore not only formulate a program, but they must fashion new tactics which do not count on government goodwill but instead serve to compel unwilling authorities to yield to the mandates of justice. We are demanding an emergency program to provide employment for everyone in need of a job, or, if a work program is impractical, a guaranteed annual income at levels that sustain life in decent circumstances. It is now incontestable that the wealth and resources of the United States make the elimination of poverty absolutely practical. A second feature of our program is the demolition of slums and rebuilding by the population that live in them. There is scarcely any division among Negroes about these measures. Divisions arise only around methods for that achievement. I am still convinced that a solution of nonviolence remains possible. However, nonviolence must be adapted to urban conditions and urban moods. The effectiveness of street marches in cities is limited because the normal turbulence of city life absorbs them as mere transitory drama quite common in the ordinary movement of masses. In the South, a march was a social earthquake. In the North, it is a faint, brief exclamation of protest. Nonviolent protest must now mature to a new level to correspond to heightened black impatience and stiffen white resistance. This higher level is mass civil disobedience. There must be more than a statement to the larger society. There must be a force that interrupts its functioning at some key point. That interruption must, however, not be clandestine or surreptitious. It is not necessary to invest it with guerrilla romanticism. It must be open and, above all, conducted by large masses without violence. If the jails are filled to thwart it, the meaning will become even clearer. The Negro will be saying, I am not avoiding penalties for breaking the law. I am willing to endure all your punishment, because your society will not be able to endure the stigma of violently and publicly oppressing its minority to preserve injustice. Mass civil disobedience as a new stage of struggle can transmute the deep rage of the ghetto into a creative force to dislocate the functioning of a city without destroying it can be more effective than a riot because it can be longer-lasting, costly to the larger society, but not wantonly destructive. Finally, it is a device of social action that is more difficult for the government to quell by superior force. The limitation of riots, moral questions aside, is that they cannot win, and their participants know it. Hence, it is not revolutionary, but reactionary, because it invites defeat. It involves an emotional catharsis, but it must be followed by a sense of futility. Where does the future point? The character of the next period is being determined by the response of the white decision-makers to this crisis. It is a harsh indictment, but it is an inescapable conclusion that Congress is not horrified with the conditions of Negro life, but with the product of these conditions, the Negro himself. It could, by a single massive act of concern expressed in a multi-billion dollar program to modernize and humanize Negro communities, do more to obviate violence than could be done by all the armies at its command. Whether it will summon the wisdom to do it is the question of the hour. It is a shattering historical irony that the American Revolution of 1776 was a consequence of many of the same conditions that prevail today. King George adamantly refused to share power even in modest degree with the colonies. He provoked violence by scorning appeals embodied in nonviolent protests such as boycotts, peaceful demonstrations, and partitions. In their result to violence, the colonists were pressed ideologically beyond their original demands and put into question the system of absolute monarchical rule. When they took up arms and searched for the rationale for independence, they broke with all traditions of imperial domination and established a unique and unprecedented form of government, the democratic republic. The Negro Revolt, too, is evolving. Now it is more than a quest for desegregation and equality. It faces a system that has created miracles of production and technology and challenges it to create justice. If humanism is locked outside of the system, Negroes will have revealed its inner court of despotism and a far greater struggle for liberation will unfold. The United States is substantially challenged to demonstrate that it can abolish not only the evils of racism but the tragedy of poverty of whites as well as Negroes and, above all, the horrors of war that transcend the national borders and involve all of mankind. The first man to die in the American Revolution was a Negro seaman. Crispus Attucks. Before that fateful struggle ended, the institution of absolute monarchy was put on its deathbed. We may now only be in the initial period of an era of change as far-reaching in its consequences as the American Revolution. The developed industrial nations of the world, which include Canada as much as the United States, cannot remain secure islands of prosperity in a seething sea of poverty. A storm is rising against the privileged minority of the earth from which that is no sheltered in isolation or armament. The storm will not abate until a just distribution of the fruits of the earth enables man everywhere to live in dignity and human decency." The American Negro of 1967, like Crispus Attucks, may be the vanguard in a prolonged struggle that may change the shape of the world as billions of deprived shake and transform the earth in their quest for life, freedom, and justice. That was Dr. Martin Luther King in the first of this year's Massey Lectures. Next week, he discusses the war in Vietnam. Tonight's program was produced by Janet Somerville and Del McKenzie. Stay tuned now for The Best of Ideas, Part 2, which follows the news over most of these CBC stations. Ken Haslam speaking. This is the CBC Radio Network.
1: And this is uh, the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast, and that was uh, part one to the historic uh, Massey Lectures delivered uh, by Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. in 1967 over the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation Radio. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment uh, for today's program. Love um, with lead vocalist and writer Arthur Lee and uh, that uh, track was entitled Stephanie Knows Who uh, from their second album De Capo uh, from uh, 1967 and uh, right now we're going to go to a media briefing from the African National Congress in the KwaZulu-Natal district on uh, developments uh, inside the ANC and also inside that province in South Africa
10: Oh okay. Oh, oh, um,
5: oh
10: okay, okay. Okay. No, it's fine. Uh Ms. I started uh letu uh speeding members of the uh, initial who have joined us. Uh, since morning the entire left democratic movement you will know that we are in the festive season and we want to wish uh, everyone ukusimuzi omuse. and uh, in the main the provincial chair was taking us into our final year statement but as part of that we have also reflected to new developments uh, in the province with me I'm joined by the provincial secretary of the ANC women's league Umam Next to her is the Deputy Chair of the ANC in the province Usis Nomakuku, the Provincial Chair of the ANC Mtombeni, and Provincial Secretary Ukomrit uh, Begimdolo, Ukomrit Ustiposlomuga, Provincial Secretary Wekosatu
3: who put
10: cover there, who put cover there, who put on it to the u provincial secretary, eh, we ANC U Tlik, uh, eh, Ucombre Tuzama, and ngale I'll We ANC U Tlik, and sino provincial chapes in U Kumberisi, uh, eh, Wama Sorcha, uh eh, no pala we've uh alabunagali no pale to the nopale kosas, you know, we sasasko. We will uh, allow the Provincial Secretary of the ANC, o Comrade Langamandla, to take us through the statement and then we will uh, entertain questions. question.
4: No, oh, Thank you uh, very much uh, Ngwane, our spokesperson. Greetings the leadership of the ANC, Women's League, uh, ANC officials, Kusatu, uh, uh, comrades from the MK Military Liberation War Veterans, Comrade Youth League Coordinator and Convener, Uh, Comrades uh, from SASCO and COSAS. Uh, We wish to uh, sincerely apologize uh, uh, for the delay. Uh, We normally, you know, we always keep time. A revolutionary g- greetings to you for coming to cover this uh, press briefing of the Mass Democratic Congress Movement. We also wish to welcome other media practitioners that are on the digital platform. We express our revolutionary greetings to activists and caters of the Mass Democratic Movement in all the corners of our province, the province of KwaZulu-Natal. Importantly, our hearts are always with all the people of KwaZulu-Natal, who continue to support the ANC, the only party that represents the hope and the aspirations and the better future of the people, not only of KwaZulu-Natal, but the people of South Africa. As we began our press briefing, we wish to indicate that, for the record, that is a briefing convened after a meeting of the mass democratic movement of all the structures that I've mentioned, which started this morning. It was robust, frank, and attended by representatives of the following structures of our Mass Democratic Movement. The entire Provincial Executive Committee of the ANC, regional officials of Regional Executive Committee of the ANC, the South African Communist Party, South African Trade Union, Congress of South African Trade Union, South African National Civic Organization, Sanko, ANC Women's League, Youth League, SASCO, Young Communist League of South Africa and Congress of South African Students. In our meeting we reflected on the press briefing held by former President Jacob Zuma on the 16th of December 2023. Sholos announced through this press briefing without utilizing internal processes that he will vote for a new party called We um Sizwe, and further campaign all South Africans to vote for this new party that he said it was formed through his knowledge and his blessing. By doing so, we feel that as the Congress movement, he did decampaign the African National Congress and effectively mobilise for a new party established through his blessings and knowledge. The party was established in in September 2023 to oppose the African National Congress. We admitted in our meeting that leaders of the ANC, especially former presidents, have in the past voiced their concerns about weaknesses in the African National Congress. Former and current leaders of the ANC have publicly raised concerns about the shortcomings of the ANC leaders across all levels. There have been concerns as well about the quality of our membership. However, It should be noted with great concern that this is for the first time that in 111 years of the ANC's existence a former president and an outstanding leader of our movement announces publicly his decision to vote for another political party and effectively campaign for that party, which we view as literally divorcing the ANC and leaving the ANC to another political formation. It is also no exaggeration to state that this is a form of cross-indiscipline. But we remain a focus. As the African National Congress in Guazulu-Natal, we note Comrade um, Mishoulou's assertion. We will continue to tell our people that the ANC is still the ANC that they have trusted since 1994. Nothing has changed. Of course with the appreciation that every member of the ANC come as an individual member, join the organization voluntarily and leave the organization voluntarily at his or her own behest. Therefore we also note that this has happened at a time when the ANC in Wazul-Natal has been registering a great progress in winning by-elections. Not only winning by-elections but winning them in a decisive victory. In various by-elections that we have won we can count among others the decisive victory that was registered in Ward 41 in Musunduzi, under our district, the by-election that we have won in Ward 7 in Mukambatini in the same district, Umkungunjov, the by-election we have won in Ward 101 in Etiwini, our stronghold, the by-election we have also won in in Ward 23. In all these by-elections it is a clear recognition from the people of kwazulu our masses who are the true assessor of the progress that is made by the ANC. They have shown through their, from, through their, their, their uh, supporting the ballot that the ANC still remains the hope and the protector of their future going forward. We hope that going to 2024, the ANC is still in a better shape not only to defend the province of KwaZulu-Natal, but to make sure that it contributes significantly for the defense of the revolution in entire South Africa. But we also want to, the meeting has also wanted, a uh, resolve to explain that uh, there must be a difference between the so-called Umkonto Sizwe Party and the well-known we Sizwe that was launched in 16 December 1961. That... The simple to differ in this umkhondoiso that is a is a, is a new umkhondoiso and is not a genuine SISU. It's a party disguised to lure voters and members and loyal members of the ANC to think it's the same thing as the SISU that was formed by the ANC. You would know that for you to join SISU you are required first amongst many requirements. The first step you must be a guerrilla. Of you should have gone underground, you should have a false number, you should know your commander, you should know your cell, you should know your camp in the I, I, at exile. Now for this one because we've seen also their recruitment forms, they recruit anyone, even my child who was born in 2000, can be part of this new Umkonto Esizu. It's a clear sign that this is not a, a, a true umkhonto it's a fake umkhonto then we are calling upon our people that that is with us today is with the ANC and they are not in any way campaigning these people to vote against the ANC. They will be in our, in our campaign working with us door-to-door, village-to-village, street-by-street, house-to-house, and, uh, village-to-village, campaigning the, A- the people of KwaZulu-Natal to vote the ANC. And we are happy with the reception we are receiving. Uh, to the pe- from the people of KwaZulu-Natal that they still have hope in the ANC. And we will demonstrate this on the 24th of, Weber, of February this year, when we fill up Moses State data in the Maheshomer Rally that will be launched uh, by the African National Congress, which will be addressed by our Commander-in-Chief, President Cyril Matamela Ramaphosa, the President of the ANC. Thank you very much. No, no,
10: thank you Comrade uh, Unopala for that uh, reflection which comes from uh, all of us in the mass democratic movement. We will uh, then take this opportunity and allow members of the fourth estate to uh, raise any question if they are any. I will start from my left hand side. And then I will simply give you numbers. You will be number one, be number two, three, and then you will be number four. And number
4: one. Hi, Patty Harper, Mail and Guardian. Two dates for the questions. Um, You say that the former president has proposed the ANC. Do you see a need for the party to take any form of disciplinary action regarding the offenses that he's committed? Um, and secondly, how does this impact on who's standing as an office bearer of the cycle? One of the MDM, decampaign campaign, the MDM, the five extension cycle. So how do the
1: formations deal with that?
10: Thank you. Thank you. Number two. Uh, my name is Bussi Kumar from SAPC News. Uh, mine is almost similar to my colleague Kappa. about uh, any uh, disciplinary measures that the party might take um, uh, in relation to what has just happened regarding Uzo. Thank you. Number three.
9: Uh, my name is Lai from the Witness newspaper. Uh, we saw a few days ago the ANC Veteran Association Deputy <coughs> President, uh, Mabusom announcing his resignation from the ANC, then a few days later uh, retracting his uh, of membership after engaging uh, the ANC leadership. Uh, in the case of former President uh, Jacob Zuma, uh, is this current leadership here, it is in front of us, of the view that uh, there is room for engagement and for persuading for him to regret his decision?
10: Thank you. Thank you. Um,
9: yeah, but
4: someone that calls my ESCA cross-ills discipline. That's how you describe it non-bala. I'm calling for expellation of the former president based on that cross-ills discipline. Number two, political analysts are predicting that saying the Sun Court is the party is going to eat
1: Welcome back. And uh, that was excerpts uh, from a briefing uh, by the African National Congress that took place uh, four days ago in uh, kwazulu natal that's going to conclude uh, the pan-african journal special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for today uh, friday december 22nd uh, 2023 and uh, we are broadcasting uh, from our studios in uh, downtown detroit we'd like to thank all of our listeners uh, for uh, tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition uh, of uh, the pan-african journal If you'd like to have access uh, to this program, all you need to do is go uh, to our website, and uh, that is at uh, the Pan-African Radio Network. Pan-African Radio Network can be reached at blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-african journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-african journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out uh, with the live music of the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, uh, live in Paris. This is Abayomi Azikoway, uh signing off, and have a beautiful week. For
2: the first time in France, Aretha Franklin!
3: I said if I lose this dream I don't know what I'm gonna do You're gonna find me Doing what I'm doing right now And that's just sitting around